I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We're really happy to have Joe and Walter in Texas joining us. They have an update, some stuff going on. Fellas, how you doing? We're doing pretty good. At least I am. How about you, Walter? <laughs> oh, I'm doing great, great. Well, I, I guess the only way to approach this is you sent us some pictures and some stuff happened recently, so I'm just going to turn the microphone over to you guys and uh, tell us what happened. Well, you know, we went out camping um, what, about a month ago, Walter? Yeah. Yeah, we went out camping. Uh, we set out some mics, you know, some recorders. Um, we got some pretty good vocals on that trip, I guess, you know. Um, uh, you know, um, th th that whole place where, uh, where, where Walter had his experience, his encounter, really, it's just such a weird, weird place. And then um, Walter went out like, two weeks after that and he found something interesting right walter tell him about the, what the the tree break you found well uh, uh on on the way in to to our side there's there's like i said before there's no exit except for the one road that you used to come in and about i would say 10 yards from where you, we park there's a branch that was above the road and it's a pretty good thick sized branch it seemed like it was twisted and thrown in the middle of the road kind of i don't know i guess kind of i felt like kind of a stay away kind of deal right right and so when i went back it, and it was it's definitely covered more than half the road the picture does really don't do it justice but yeah, it's definitely covering more than half the road. You got to, you know, there's barely enough room for the truck to get around. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It it just happened so quickly, and is it right in that area that where Walter had his his encounter? Um, we did some walking around there Saturday, uh, last Saturday, and uh, we found some what looked like prints and. We weren't really sure at first what the heck kind of prints they were, and it wasn't until after I got home I started to really, really think about it. I'm like, dude, these are these got to be knuckle prints, you know? And uh, so we went back there. No, we went there on Friday, and then Saturday when we went back there, that's when we we wound up casting them. And these, uh, they were at least four and a half feet apart, maybe even closer to five. Um, so whatever it was, it, it had a big stride, uh, you know. It, it it almost looked like a hoof print, but whatever it was, it left ridges like 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 knuckles, you know, and it, and it certainly like dug up the ground, like it was you know pushing off, and 
the one thing also I'll say is that me and Walter and even Lupe walked that area, and we didn't make any kind of impression on the ground other than the surface. Right, Walter? Right. Yeah, yeah. you know those impressions look like five digits. You can count the uh, you can count the impressions. Right. And Walter uh, actually had to dig his boot into the ground to make uh, an impression like that because that it, it even though it's sandy, it was very hard. It was very uh, compact sand. And, yeah, uh, I, I was trying to recruit to try to see. I mean, if some did somebody walk through here, you know, trying to debunk whatever he could have been before. And if it was a human, I mean, they would have had to have been walking on their tiptoes. And you know, you're talking about a five foot stride on 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 your tiptoes, you know, or maybe four and a half to five foot stride on your tiptoes, and at the same time digging into the ground. I, I think even the person that was running wouldn't have been able to create that. Um, and like I said, there was clearly would look like digits you know um yeah and the very first one wasn't that deep but the other three were and i'm thinking that first one if this if this is one of those creatures that that's when it initially got down on all fours you know um we all seem to have had the same opinion that it happened that day and we were even wondering if it happened because it was on the opposite side of that road that we were on and we were even thinking man i wonder if while we were on the other side of the forest if it, if it came from uh, to kind of check up and see what we were doing, you know. Um, so that was kind of scary because, I mean, they were fresh, Will. I'm saying they were, they had to have been that, you know, that same day, if not within, you know, the time that we were there. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think they were there when we got there. The pictures yeah. looked fresh. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, uh, I mean, they were just, that ground was so compact, it almost had like a crusty layer to it, if that makes sense. And, 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 and you could tell where that layer broke, and it, it, looked, it just looked so fresh, um, you know. And like, like I said, even Lupe was like, "Man, this happened today," you know. And Lupe, you know, Lupe is a good tractor, tractor uh, tracker, as you'll find. You know, he, he really knows the outdoors. And man, that guy—you got to keep an eye on him, right, Walter? He yeah. would disappear in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn around at once, and, and I told you, man, this guy's a pirate. <laughs> hey, Joe. Uh, hey. Walter, quick question. I'm looking at this picture and the one where you're, you're straddling, and I see that it looks like a. It definitely looks like, you know, like a handprint, not a handprint, but you know, or but it almost scraped with some fingers. Um, it looks like now is this a river bed or what's what's all the sand from? I I, I think it's maybe from uh, a previous rain because it had rained uh well, it's been raining here for like three months you took and, the uh, words out of my mouth that was my next question the sand is pockmarked it looks like it's been it looks like a recent rain there yeah it, it, it's been raining here off and on for like the last three months probably all year really um uh, so i'm thinking it's it, it's from just sediment that's kind of flowed downhill um and, well uh, the, the important thing is is if you look at that picture uh your right foot is just you know right in front of it is that that hand mark or scrape mark from you know knuckles or whatever all the sand around it <clears throat> i just want to make this kind of point this out has that appearance of being pockmarked you know right. by rainfall but that isn't so that was well after uh whatever you know whatever rain i don't know when it rained you know uh, was it that day or yeah, it had probably recently? been about three or four days previously that it had rained. Okay. Yeah. So those are real fresh, real fresh marks. Yeah. yeah. So, 
we, we left some recorders there and we left some, but maybe what, two or three miles down the road, Walter at that little bridge. Um, so the next morning, we'll, we, we, we're going, and I've been to this site, I don't know how many times, seven, eight times, I guess already. I've never gotten nervous there. We're, we're going over there and we're talking just like normal. And right before we get to that tree uh, break, man, I got, that, that was the first time in like three years that I really, really got kind of nervous almost to the point of being scared. Uh, I just felt like the insides were trembling. My, my, my hands were just about to get ready to shake. I was clenching my jaw and I told Walter, I said, hey man, I'm feeling very weird. I haven't felt like this in a long time. And uh, that put him on high alert too. <laughs> so we get to the site and I'm like, dude, let's just get our recorders and let's, you know, let's get out of here. Well, you know, after we cast the tracks, we wanted to make sure we cast those those tracks. And I'm calling them tracks because they are some kind of track, you know. Uh, you know, with this they're, they're, this tree that's broken, is was it twisted? It looks like it's twisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely twisted. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, it... I mean, it's it, it looks like something just ringed it, almost like a, you know, like a wash towel. You know, it, it it's definitely got a twist to it. Do you remember how? Uh, two questions, I guess. How far off the ground it this was, and how oh, how man. thick how thick is the branch? And, yeah, I bet that thing was every bit of twelve feet off the ground. Okay. At, you know, um, how big around? Um, I don't know, four inches, right, right, right in that ballpark. It, it was at least that, I'd say. That's pretty thick. Um, yeah, yeah, it, and 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 that tree is green, as you can tell. It, it looks, I mean, it's a green tree. It looks freshly done. Yeah, uh, so like I said, we were there a month ago. Walter saw that tree two weeks later, and then this is two weeks after that. So, uh, so within that amount of time, that you know that tree was broken and it's still very very green. You know, all the leaves are still very green uh, from the two weeks previously to when Walter saw it. Um, and there's no other damage to any of the trees there. And we did find a lot of trees that are just like snapped off at the top, especially like these, uh, I guess they're saplings. They're probably a, a good three, four inches around too. And they're just snapped, you know, about seven, eight foot high off the ground. And, uh, you know, they're like I said, they're probably, you know, three, four, maybe five inches in diameter and they're, and they're just snapped, you know, um, I, I don't know what could have went up there and twisted that tree, but we measured where Walter saw that his and it's, it was nine and a half feet, Will. Uh, because I think I told you from the last time we were on that there was like a white mark on a tree. It, and it's actually like a fungus. I asked Lupe about that. And he said, yeah, because that's a fungus. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where his head was at. So that we, we had a good measuring spot for it. And we, we measured it when we went out camping a month ago and it was nine and a half feet tall. So that could have easily reached up and twisted that branch. If that's what the same creature did, that uh, you know, that twisted that branch. And so, right across uh, from it is the those three tree branches that are snapped. Yeah, and then they're put together like three different trees. There, they were snapped and just bent weird. And there's and there's one tree. Um, that we were examining where, like I said, the top part of it was broken and, uh, and it was a pretty, you know, green tree too. Uh, and it was laying on the ground because we thought this other tree was, was part of it, but it's not. So we don't even know where this other part came from. And it was stabbed into the ground. What Walter about good five inches into the ground. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was stabbed like a javelin, you know, and, uh, 
So we don't even know where that tree came from because there was no other trees around, you know, that perimeter mm-hmm. that, that, that we found them. Did you guys get a picture of that one? I yes. didn't take a picture, but but you did, Walter? Yeah, I have pictures. Okay. Can you can you send that? And the reason I asked is because uh, we talked to some guys <clears throat> recently in Australia, and that's one of the things that they found was in an area where there's, you know, they, they, they're they convinced that there's no people there. And there's just a trail every so often of one of these sticks stuck in the ground. And it could not have happened naturally. It couldn't have fallen that way. It would have, you know, if it fell, it's going to land on its side. So that's why I'd like to see the picture. That is really uh, very compelling information. And um, so while we were there getting those our recorders and waiting for the uh, uh, the plaster to dry on, 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 the, on the prints, uh, I went down the road because I actually put my recorder uh, – not that far away from that uh, tree break. Uh, I just want to leave a recorder over there. And I only left the thing off the road, like maybe three feet off the road. And just reaching into that little forest area right there to get my recorder, man, I was I was nervous. I was really, really nervous. And uh, Walter goes, well, we still got to go get mine. He left his even further back. And it was maybe about like 60 feet or so. And, uh, yeah, I, I was nervous going in there, you know, the, the whole time. Um then we got back to the truck, and there's like a little clearing where we uh, park because it's at a dead end. And uh, so we got back there. We were just standing around in that opening. I told him, you know, this is it's not a very big opening, but, man, I felt just so much better staying there than being in the woods that day. And then we heard what sounded like something very heavy getting thrown and, and hitting the ground. I, I, we didn't go investigate to see what it was because – I was on edge, and I wasn't about to go to see what it was, but something was definitely, uh, I'd say, thrown at us. And also, but maybe five minutes before that is when we heard the murmur, right, uh, Walter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we both turned around and looked at each other. I'm like, man, did you hear that? And he's like, yeah, I heard it. And I said, it sounded like somebody was talking, right? But it just sounded like one being rather than two. It just sounded just like a murmur, and we couldn't understand what the hell was being said. But, yeah, so we were... Uh, kind of nervous on that day. At least I was. Well, I felt like puking. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of scary. That's the first time I felt like that in quite a few years, at least three years. I used to go in there pretty happy-go-lucky. I mean, I'm looking for sign. I'm looking on the ground, looking up in the trees, and uh, Saturday morning, my head was just on a swivel. I was, swivel. I was just looking around and just trying to watch everything. What do you think the distance was? How far away was the the murmur? Like ten yards, fifty yards? I I, I don't think it's on it too far. I, no. I think it's on it it's on it close enough for us to be worried and far enough where we should have gotten the heck out. <laughs> yeah, if, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say 60, 70 feet. You know, it, it wasn't far at all because it was it was a pretty clear murmur. It was pretty clear, you know. And, um, That's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. It, it it sounded like it was trying to be quiet, but it was close enough to where we heard it. Well, and he threw that log at us, and I turned it around. the other direction, yeah. And I asked you, was that you? And yeah. You're looking at me like, what the hell? No. <laughs> and, and he's sort of standing right next to me, but he just sounded like they threw something in our general direction. Like I said, we were like in a little opening, and it, it landed right, right in the uh, right in the edge of the forest. 
you know. And uh, I, I'd say something was thrown because if something would fell out of the tree, you would have heard it hitting the branches, you know. It, but you just heard it go boom, you know. It, it sounded like you know you could hear the whistling as it was going through the air and it hit the ground. Yeah. And I can say, and but then we found like this big chunk of uh, concrete in the back of the woods. Also, it, it had nothing to do yeah. with it had nothing to do with, with what was thrown. But we just thought it was kind of weird that we found this big chunk of concrete in in the out the woods. That you know, it could have came from anyone, I guess. But why would anyone carry a big old chunk of concrete? You know, right. it looked like a it looked like the chunk of concrete, like when people put a post. You know, how it kind of has a round shape to it for the hole. That's what it looked like, and you know, like it had been inside, it had been the ground at some time. It was only like maybe like half of it. Like who's carrying around chunks of concrete in the woods? Yeah, but that was. And there's no other, no other chunks or no other. No, not at all. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, it, it seemed really out of place. Yeah. It was just completely out of place. And then you know. Uh, we did find an area that was flattened out. It was a big area full of pine needles and and and, uh, and leaves. It was just everything was just so flat there. I, I looked like something had been laying there, and I'm not saying it was big or, not, or nothing like that. But hogs would have tore up that ground, and we didn't see any sign of hogs. And then that particular area, I don't know if I've seen any kind of uh, sign of hog out there. I've seen deer out there for sure, but I haven't seen any hogs out there. And this whole area looked like it was just matted down. It was a pretty big area, maybe, I don't know, eight by eight, eight feet, right? Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't like that before when we went there those two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We it, took a picture of that. And lush and, you know, covered in, in little trees. And, and that wasn't too far from the track way either, from the, from the prints that we got. I mean, it was, you know, man, 15, 20 feet maybe away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't very far from that either, so... So that whole area, man, it's just uh, it's got a weird vibe to it. I think it's a good area, and uh, you know we definitely have plans of going out there again. And I'm really trying to hope that we could contact somebody to let us camp out there because a lot of that place is a private property. But uh, that's what we really want to do is go out there and just camp and see what happens. So the area that you're in, you know, with the knuckle prints and all that, that's. Do you have to get permission first to, to camp there? Or? I'm yeah, not I, camp, but to just to hike on the property. Yeah, I think so. But this is right off the road, so we're like, no, we're going oh, to okay, yeah. gotcha. So all this stuff that we're looking at here is close to a road, right? Is it a uh, like a gravel road or paved road? Or? It's a, it's a dirt. Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it's okay. all dirt. It's got the, those little bitty. I forget what you call that. Those little bitty rocks. So that they, when they put it down, right? But yeah, but they put that down at some areas and the rest of the area. Uh, man, I guess a good mile in. It's nothing but dirt road. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is is a lot of animals use the, you know, the power cuts and the, and the roads and stuff because it's you know path of least resistance, right. and it just makes sense that these would do the same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I've seen deer on, on, on that road. Um, I was driving down and there was like, man, I don't know, four or five deers in right just walking down in front of me. They didn't have a care in the world that I was coming up behind them. And then not till I got closer, they, they finally you know, ran into the woods. But yeah, they didn't care. Except for when we were leaving. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we were leaving. Two deers running for their lives and they just jumped the road 
And then you had the window down, and it sounded like something was after it, didn't it? Yeah, I heard a, I heard a sound like a branch, you know, snapping or breaking after we stopped the truck. And I started recording, but I, I you couldn't hear nothing because your engine was running. Yeah, yeah, but that was that. Yeah, that was a that's the only time I think I've seen deer running that whole area. And that Saturday morning we were leaving, so this made me kind of just kind of added to the mystery, I guess. So do you think they were? They were something was in pursuit. Well, they were spooked. I I, I know that much. Uh, I mean, they were running. They weren't galloping. They weren't walking. I mean, they were moving. And we've I've, I've never seen them do that before. Usually, you drive right past them and they just stand there and look yeah. at you. Yeah, right, right on the side of the road, just stare they, at you. They really couldn't care less. But this time, no. This time, they were they were running from something. Yeah, it had nothing to do with you guys. I mean, if what? I would stop them, they would have probably hit the truck. Yeah. Yeah, but well, that second one probably would have hit. Yeah. Yeah. And this is an area that you guys have checked out in the past quite a bit, right? Since Walter's encounter, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's a good area, and uh, I like it. And, uh, you know, we always get something good on the recorders, you know, even uh, Walter, like I said, he left his recorder there, and I, and I left one further out. And uh, he got some pretty good sound like screams. And I got a couple of wood knocks on mine. The one I left by the bridge that was further out. I got a couple of wood knocks on that. Okay. Yeah. I know so when you hear the wood knocks, they're kind of, they're originating from, well, out, out in the trees or out in the woods somewhere. Yeah. Let me do this. Um, can you recap Walter's encounter? We have a lot of new listeners out there, and they would love to hear, uh, you know, the highlights of that. Um, it was in November 8th, I believe. Uh, we got there. It was a group of three people. We got there, and, you know, we had the idea of, you know, searching the woods for the famous Bigfoot, which I had no knowledge about at this point in time. And... Um, as we're talking to each other and, you know, getting our equipment ready, a guy shows up in a pickup, gets out and says, uh, you guys okay? Yeah, we're fine. Oh, you're looking for Bigfoot. And that struck us as very, very odd. Uh, long story short, he uh, offered to take us somewhere to see the Bigfoot against our better judgment. We said, yeah, sure, why not? Like, as if it was a good idea. And... Uh, so we drive down a little bit ways down the road. Nothing happened there. So he offered again. Again, we say yes. And once we got off the vehicles, I started walking to the right side of the road of the of the forest. And there was a tree that's on the creek that's almost on top of the creek. And so it's at an angle. And there was a, a big scat, about a coke can size kind of scat and I was trying to make sense of it because I've seen a lot of scat before from other animals you know it doesn't compare at all to a bear scat it has it's nothing like it uh, and as we're looking at it we received this low growl from across the creek a growl that was so mine I'm it was the most disturbing thing you could hear it it wasn't a scream. It was like a growl, like a, like a possessed, 
lion or, or, or some kind of demon. And with each growl, your ribcage would vibrate to the sound. And, man, I've never heard anything that scary. So I have the brilliant idea to jump on the creek because at that time it didn't have that much water and try to find some prints. And, and it was like... I. It was like I cursed at it. It started growling even more. And everybody's saying, oh, don't be dumb. You know, get out of there. You know, it's going to eat you, whatever. It's going to kill you. You're crazy. Get out of there. So he did a really, really loud growl. And that one just scared the heck out of me. And we all got out of there. And we masked kind of in the middle of the road where we parked the vehicles. And that's where all the sounds started going off. They started imitating cows and coyotes and, you know, all kinds of sounds. And and it was just hard to figure out, man, what the hell is that? Because it would do a cow, but at the end it would get excited and it would do like a simian rah! And then you would hear the, the coyotes howl, and, you know, and at the end it would be, it would, I mean, it started as a howl, so it would go like, oh, and then, like, it would get like, I don't know, like a singing type of scream. And it got very scary. We got objects thrown at us. I mean, you could hear them. They were, I mean, they had to be doing it on purpose, of course, to let us know that we're there. But I felt like they were funneling us uh, away from the main road. And kind of in the in, in a V shape type of, of of hunt, and it was scary. I mean, I was I, I've never been that scared in my life. I I, I almost lost my mind, and uh, somebody yelled, "There, there, there!" So I instantly told everybody, "Stay together!" And I grabbed my gun and I'm pointing out in the middle of the forest to the left side of us. I would say maybe eight thirty to nine o'clock. And out of this big, thick tree, this head bobs out and kind of takes a look at me and just, I just froze. I, I've never seen anything quite like that. He kind of hides back again, shows his head again, looks at me, you know, and gives me that up and down look. And I just feel every inch of my body frozen. And at this point, I know all I'm going to do with this gun is just piss it off. And it's going to kill me. It's going to shred me to little pieces. And I've never felt that impending fear of death. Like, I, I, I felt like that was my last day alive. And I holstered the gun, and he does this one more time. And you could see his shoulders were probably about five feet apart. I mean, they were so wide. You could see them on each side of the tree. And I put my hands up in the air and I start saying, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. You know, I'm dead. I'm done. And I start walking back to the middle and I'm just waiting for this thing to grab me and absolutely shred me to pieces. And well, luckily for me, that didn't happen. But we got in our cars and we took off. But that was, wow. What are you thinking uh, before you see the thing? You're hearing these howls that go into this simian whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, you've obviously never heard that before. 
it's something new. What what do you what's going through your mind when you hear this? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a constant internal struggle, if that makes any sense, because I've been hunting before in the forest, and I've heard the the animals actually make the real sounds, and you just it's mind baffling. You're just sitting there, and you're like, did I just hear what I think I heard? I mean, I know that's not a cow because that's not how cows move, but it was pretty darn close. And once you start hearing the simian and the screams attached to it, wow. It's like, what is, I mean, it's just amazement and you being scared to death, a mix. It was just terrifying. And this is the first time you've heard anything like this and then you continue on and then you see the creature so Correct. you really don't have a frame of reference uh in your past to compare this with right no no not at all it was it was the most terrifying thing because i mean like you just said there's nothing in my, there's nothing in my uh in my mind to compare it to or to go off of i mean what am i looking at i mean i've never seen anything I mean, it's, it's, this thing, this thing gave me nightmares for the longest time. And actually, Joe is the one that helped me kind of get through it. And if it wasn't for Joe, I wouldn't be even doing this. You're welcome, (laughs) I guess. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, from the first couple of times that I went out with Walter, I mean, I could see how much. Uh, matter of fact, we were talking about this, weren't we, Walter? Yeah. And I could see the. I, I could see how much he's he, he's overcome because uh, even when those deer ran out in front of us, he, he he stopped the truck pretty quick, but he didn't lock it up like like he did the first time when we saw a squirrel run out in front of the truck, and he locked the, you know, he locked them up. I'm really, uh, I, I laugh about it when I say it, but I'm glad I had my seatbelt on that day because I would probably would have went through the windshield, but. Uh, yeah, even though he he did stop hard when the deer ran out in front of us, it wasn't like it was when he first went out there. And I was telling him that uh, when he first went out there with him, I mean, he was like rubbing his pant legs. You know, like if your pants get sweaty, uh, you, you kind of wipe them off. I mean, he was just walking around like that, just rubbing his. He didn't even realize he was doing it. I was telling him. Uh, I, said, I said, you don't do that anymore. He's like, I was doing it? I'm like, yeah, I could just see how tense you were, you know. And So he, he's gotten a lot better. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I'm, I'm glad for that. You know, I'm, I'm happy for him that he seems to be getting better on, you know, as far as getting too tense out there and, uh, you know, getting, uh, you know, let fear get the best of you. Because, you know, like I said, I was, I was scared Saturday. You know, I was definitely uh, on edge, but I still was out there and I was still looking around and, you know, trying to play it cool. I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It was, but I'm going to say it, it was kind of hard to stay cool that day because it was just in the air. I mean, sometimes you just get this weird feeling and, and I hadn't gotten that in a long time. And, and I just felt like vomiting that day was, was weird. And then, like you said, you know, we heard that murmur and then that object that was thrown at us. I mean, I, I honestly think that when we went to the to the left side, which is the side where I had the encounter and we started actually following that creek, I think that they came from the other side and they were like keeping tabs on us at a safe right. distance. Right. And that would explain why they were on their 
all fours. You know, that's why it's clear why they're on their knuckles because, you know, if they were standing up, we would have been able to see them because even there were points back, even though we were pretty far back in the creek, I could still see the truck, you know. And uh, uh, so, yes, I mean, if, but if they were on their uh, fours, we would have never seen it. I don't, I don't say them, but definitely at least one. Joe, I sent you the picture. Uh, okay. I don't know if you sent it to Tom. Yeah, I'll send it to him after the sh- after the show. Yeah, I'll definitely send it to him. And and on the recorder, uh, like Joe said, it, after, I think it was seven fifty seven hours and fifty six minutes uh, that everything started. You could hear uh, a tree knock, and I th- at first I thought it was uh, like somebody shot or something. Cause that's what that's how loud it was. It sounded like a shot, and then you can hear, and 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 I've been really thinking about this. It sounded like there were two female Sasquatches yelling and screaming at each other. Huh. I, I mean, it just and it goes on for quite a while, quite a while, and they're just yelling at each other back and forth back and forth and then at some point you hear a male just do a one loud scream and then everything stopped so i'm not sure what was going on but I mean, what was it um that made you think it was female was it the tone of voice or the tone the the the, the tone of, of of the of the i mean I, looking- I can send you the recording so you can hear it oh i'd love to yeah absolutely um, and I'm looking at the uh, picture. This is the one of the where you're talking about the uh, tree branches. It's kind of wrung like a wet towel. Only it's it's you know taken back. It's funny because the tree is it's green. It's so it's a real fresh break or twist or whatever. But they've shoved uh, half that tree on the ground. Yep. And it's very thick vegetation in there. I, I would say just beyond that tree, you don't have any any more than ten or fifteen feet right. uh, visibility. Correct. Yeah, and I just want to kind of let everyone know that, like I said, it's, it happened within the last month, and you know we haven't had any kind of hurricanes. We sh- certainly haven't had any kind of freeze. Uh, you know, even even tornadoes would have you know. Let the path of destruction throughout the forest. Well, you know? right, exactly. You, it, they're not selective. This is one tree yeah. chosen. And even if it was like a, you know, like an eighteen wheeler, which I don't think an eighteen wheeler would fit down this road, but it would have done. It would have hit a lot more trees, you know, on the way in. And I don't know how it would turn around and get out, but you know. Yeah, I mean, the whole forest looks completely normal unless until you. Look at that single branch. It just—it seems like something twisted it, and just left it there. You're not coming in, period. And like I said, in, um, in one of the pictures that I posted in the group of, of the branch, you know, hanging down and actually touching the ground, it's—you uh, know—we were very much inside, you know, what I would call the encounter zone. You know, our—that's uh, where we were sitting. We're sitting in the truck, and we're still very much inside the, you know, where you had this encounter. And this is the same area where you guys put your recorders. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. 
And then uh, do y'all remember that that growl I sent you guys? Didn't I send you the uh, the growl I heard? What I got? I actually got a, a recording. Um, no, I don't remember. I, I think I sent it to Will. I, I think there was a growl. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll resend that to Will and let you hear it. And this is like in uh, what February? Uh, I think it was in February, like right right before Valentine's Day, as a matter of fact. Um, and you know, it was cold and. Uh, some of the people I, I let listen to were like, man, you know, that sounds like a gator almost, but you know, the gators weren't out at that time. You know, it was it was, it was way too cold. It was still very much winter time. And uh, yeah, well, I, I know what you're talking about. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that, that route came off of your recorder. Was it your recorder or my recorder? I don't remember. But no, that was yours. Okay. And um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was cold. You know, those those well during that whole uh, winter, we had a cold winter here. So the gators hadn't even come out yet. And there's still no sign of gators in that creek, you know. Um, you know, you can see where the gators come in and out of, of, of creeks or lakes or what have you. And there's there's no sign at all of, of any kind of gator. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about that story um, or the encounter where the thing growled at you. And you said it's, it, 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 it was almost like a projected growl right yeah at you. definitely, definitely. Well, let me tell you something uh here in oregon my buddy and i this was a year ago two days ago so it was, no well it was it was early august of 2020 and he had the exact same situation i was in front of my truck and so the engine was running so i didn't hear it but all of a sudden he just comes running over and says we need to get in we need to get going now and i know what we're doing and i know where we're at so i'm not going to ask questions we're just, and uh he said that he had and we were inspecting some scat in the middle road he had and we're using a paper plate as a kind of a scale for the you know for for the picture anyway he threw it in the back of the truck and he said this thing growled at him from forest and he's been elk hunting for 30 years, and he'd never heard anything like that. It said it was presence objectionable. It was disturbed, and it wanted him gone. So it's virtually very similar to the story that you guys just situation you encountered. Yeah, yeah, you know that was uh, one of my famous stories, I guess you could say the the crowd that I got, you know, that was. Uh, we were at a different location. Walter to that location. That's when the, the, I had the dog whistle. I don't know if you remember that story or not, Tom. But I was blowing on the top of the on a dog whistle when I got that that growl. You know, me and my buddies that we were with, we got that growl. It was like it went from point A to point B. You Tell know, me it was, about it. Let, let's hear that story. Let's give well, us. Well, you know, I was out there uh, with my buddy Ernie and Shane, and um, we we stopped at this area that you know, pretty popular area. Right? area that everyone goes to and I had a dog whistle and I just someone had told me to try it and I was like okay I'll try it you know and I, I blew it like four or five times and as soon as I uh, finished I mean we got this growl and it it was so loud but it was it, it didn't fill up the forest loud it was like it came from point A to point B right at us you know like it was definitely directed from us and it was probably a couple hundred yards away um but yeah, you, you could hear where it started, and you could feel it when it when it got to us where it ended, and that was definitely projected towards us. I think blowing that dog whistle, it it wasn't uh, it didn't like it, 
And uh, that's one thing I wanted to ask Walter if you wanted to take a dog whistle out there <laughs> to try it, see, <laughs> see what happens. Probably you know? not. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, funny you guys mentioned that. I bought a dog whistle yesterday at, okay. at Cabela's. And uh, I know the cats can hear it. I know the dogs can hear it. I'm debating whether I'm going to take it up in the woods and try it out. Yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm going to try it again. You know, I, I've always, ever since then, I matter of fact, I got rid of it. And I said, I'm never taking this out there again. But I, I'm going to go back out to that location out and I want to try it. Just to see what happens. Uh, listen, man, I'm going to stand right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, if it, it could be a distress call of a, of a younger uh, Bigfoot, you might have the parents come roaring out there. Who knows? <laughs> I, I had a question for Will. Uh, uh, I heard uh, that some or somebody was telling me a story that usually the females challenge each other and the males let it go on for a while. And uh, at the end, they bow to each other. They don't they don't attack each other, but they just yell at each other. At the end, when the male has had enough, he makes a yell, and then the females bow to each other. Well, it's not just—it's not just the male; it's uh, it's the sub males also. Usually, usually the alpha. We've had an account. Um, there was somebody we interviewed a long time ago that actually heard uh, two groups encounter each other, and there was a lot of like you would expect with chimps. There was a lot of ruckus going on back and forth, and then finally, uh, apparently the dominant alpha of the two groups roared and then everything went silent and the two groups passed each other quietly and peacefully it's hmm. well, amazing and then not long ago I, I asked Joe hey Joe do you have a place where I can go you know and feel safe uh, <laughs> walking in the and you know hiking and he goes yeah go to you know this place so I go over there with a friend, and uh, we got there very early in the morning. I think it was like 7.30 in the morning. And we start walking in the forest, and my friend was vaping. And the top part of his vape, I think I think we walked about a quarter mile in. We weren't even all the way in yet. But we started walking in, and he was... He had all this vape coming out of his mouth and, and nose, and the top came out or, and fell on the ground. And as soon as he bent over to grab it, they started throwing rocks and logs at us, and we couldn't see where it was coming from because it there was so much dense foliage all around us that we couldn't see you know it, it was just and then i'm a small guy i'm, I'm not that tall anyways see, but. you guys went where they weren't <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know you know what's funny i had to put like, that in you know, for time I, well he but when he, he, was, he had told me about going out there i said you know what go to this location it's a nice location you know you might get some tree knocks you might get a whoop or something like that you know i said but they're real calm over there I didn't know all this was going to happen to <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, they're throwing, I mean, and they did uh, three mock charges at us. And uh, I immediately put my hands up and I said, okay, okay, you know, it's your house. We're leaving. We get it. We get the message. And uh, as we're walking out, they just kept throwing things and you can hear it in the recording. Uh, I got a video of it and I want to send it to you guys. So to see what you guys think. 
Let me ask you, what do you mean mock charges? You saw them or heard them or? Oh, we heard details on that. We, we, as we were walking out, because in the beginning, you felt like running, obviously. So I said to my friend, no, 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 don't run, walk, because I don't want to trigger. Since we're still learning about these creatures, I don't know if they're going to, if you run, if you're going to activate some kind of uh, uh, hunting instinct in them. So I said, let's just walk, walk, walk. And, And as we're walking, you could hear him running from the left of us. And then you would turn around and look in that direction to, you know, because he felt like it was an imminent charge. And then he would stop and then you would hear it from the right side. And so you were just looking everywhere. It was scary. It was scary. Yeah, I get a text at 8 o'clock in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. I was so scared that I texted Joe, I'm being attacked. And I'm like, I'm just waking up because at that time I worked nights and I heard my phone go off. So I looked and I saw Walter and he said, we're being attacked. And I'm like, what do you mean you're being attacked? Where are you at? You know, <laughs> it was kind of funny. But. So what you guys walked out of there, I mean, how long did it take to get out? And did they uh, did they pace you? And, you know, and they're aggressive. They paced us to the edge. Uh, it took us pro- probably about five minutes to get out of there because we were power walking, uh, you know, with our tails tucked in and just trying to stay as safe as we possibly could. And um, they paced us toward, I think, until the edge of the forest, and that was it. We, we left. We left. I talked to Joe because I, I had to get it out of my system, and... Um, I think I went home, we looked at the video, and we were trying to figure out which direction the rocks were coming from. And the first rock that was thrown at us, you can see it breaking the, the all in between all the plants, you can see the rock coming towards us. Then you hear the, the big thump, the big old log that they threw at us. And uh, Joe uh, asked me, hey, where, did any of you fall? I was like, no, man, that was the freaking tree they threw at us. And, How big uh, is this rock that they threw at you? Oh, uh, I don't you think it's big. I think it would have been like an acorn size. Okay, and then they're throwing branches at you. Yeah. It, you, I mean, you can hear it cl- very clearly in the video. And... and and that's when Joe asked me, did one of you fall? No, we didn't fall. Why? Because it sounds like something fell. And I said, no, that's a log that was being thrown at us. Yeah, then that's that's the, the following week is when we went camping out there. And uh, we went out there. We put out some trail cams and we put out some recorders out there. Um, our, our trail cams went, went off, but there was nothing ever that we saw in the pictures but they were definitely set off, you know. Yeah, that was weird. They they kept being set off, but we couldn't find anything. Yeah. Um, and and there are hogs out there. And what's funny is that we we set our cameras kind of like in a, I guess like a ninety degree angle from each other. Uh, yeah, but we didn't see anything on on our pictures at all. But when we set the cameras out there and our recorders out there, and on the way out we're walking, uh, and we probably went in I guess maybe a mile. Uh, at least that far, maybe mile, mile and a quarter, I guess. 
But uh, on the way out, uh, not too far from where him and uh, his buddy had their stuff thrown at us, at, the, at them, uh, we heard two snaps in the woods, like something, you know, was walking on the ground and snapped some branches or some twigs on the ground. So we stopped and we're kind of looking at each other and we take one step and we took that one step, we heard it pop again, right? And uh, they were like, holy shit. So we just kind of stopped and we just kind of oh, looked, yeah. listened and we didn't see anything else and then we walked the rest of the way out. But yeah, that was that was pretty strange because we heard a pop and we kept walking and we looked at each other. Then we heard a pop again and we then after that second pop, we stopped. And as soon as we took one step, we heard a pop again. And then we stopped for about, I don't know, five minutes or so and just kind of checked everything out. Nothing ever came out. You know, just to be clear, you knew that there's no other people out there. This is not, this isn't somebody walking out there pacing you guys. This is something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, uh, in that particular area, just like in Walter's area, I mean, there's no houses around there. If any other cars come down there, you're going to hear them or see them. Um, um, yes, yes. And like, like where we park, just like a little area where people can park. You know, they want to go hiking back there, but we were the only vehicles back there that morning or that evening because it was already uh, the evening time when we went back there. And a lot of times when we go out into the woods and stuff, we try to get out there early enough to where we know nobody else is out there because when we're cleaning up all the spider webs from the night before that morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's always a lot of fun getting into the spider webs. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. That that's that's like my telltale sign if anyone's been around. If if all the spider webs are gone, then someone's been walking through there. You know. Well, that's a very good point. Actually, it's a excellent point. So going back to this tree, I'm just really intrigued with it. It it is as you said. This is not a force of nature that did this. No. This is this is something did this what um was there any i don't know if you guys checked the grounds or anything on the ground that could have you know like footprints or well the, the ground is is too too hard to even leave any any drug prints right and and where that tree's at is actually a, quite a bit off the road um, and even when that branch is broken, it's it's not on the road, and you know back there it's just just so thick, and uh, you know the ground just so covered with leaf and you know and everything else on there. Yeah, I'm looking at it. it's it's pretty. Uh, it's got just got a lot of growth and stuff on it. No 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 good spots for footprints. Right. Um, did you guys get a chance to look at the tree? and see if maybe there's some hair or anything like that any other uh, possible evidence on the tree itself no um you know it, it, it's so hard to to find uh hair out there in the woods like that you know i i do look but it's it's i mean, I mean you got to be out there with a magnifying glass sometimes you know because uh even on trees and bush and stuff like that it, it's it's hard to see what what's hair and what's just a tiny vine, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and, well, it's just really interesting how this thing is twisted and then shoved down to the ground and then kind of propped up or, uh, you know, shoved up against that other tree. Well, how would that happen? Exactly. I mean, when I saw it, I, I, I was thinking to myself, wait, I was just here with Joe and 
I don't remember that being there. And just the destructive nature of the twist itself shows you that it took an external force to actually do that. Yeah, and even, you know, assuming, I mean, kids or people playing on that would not, you know, it would take an incredible amount of force to, to do that. Yeah, actually, I just sent Will uh, the pictures. Uh, you sent them to me. I sent them to you? Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm already trying to send pictures to Will. Oh, I did. Okay, so. Oh, no, I got them. Okay, you did? Okay, so the top part, of, you know, that the picture I showed you, it, and, then the, and then the second picture, the one on the ground is the one that belongs to the tree that's broken on the top. And the one that's actually leaning in the ground, leaning against the other tree, is the one that's stuck in the ground. Right. But I don't know if you want to send that to Tom. Yeah, it's obvious. This is, uh, you know, the more you look at it, it's just like there's that's, no wind or anything yeah. that caused that. And like I said, that tree is probably a good seven, eight feet where that, uh, you know, I'm going to call it a sapling because it's not a full-grown tree. It's still kind of young, I guess, but it's maybe a good four inches thick. Or just snapped off at, and then the one that's stuck in the ground, it's maybe I don't know, inch and a half round, but it's a long, like like I said, it's almost like a javelin, and it's stuck in the ground. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, guys. Um, every time I hear from Will that Joe's got something, and Walter's got something, we're real excited because you guys always get some really interesting stuff, and this today is no exception. So. Um, yeah, yeah, we're gonna keep going out there. You know, I want to go out there. If I can get out there this weekend, I'll get out there next weekend for sure. Now, Joe, you run the JRG, well, which is the Jevening Research Group. Do you want to give people your contact info? Yeah, if anyone has any uh, uh, input, any suggestions, any uh, encounters you want to talk about, you know, I'll I'll certainly listen to them. Especially if you're here in Texas, I. I mean, I try my best to get out there and meet people. You know, I I think I've got a pretty good track record in, in doing that. Uh, but uh, yeah, my email is jrg.hillcountry at gmail.com. And yeah, shoot me an, an email, man. We'll get together. And uh, I said, I don't mind meeting anybody or, you know, driving. That's for sure. And I, you know, Walter on those is, uh, man, he jumped with both feet in on this thing. So, you know, I know he'll, he'll back me up and help me out too. Absolutely. All right, guys, great update, great information. Be careful when you go back out there. Yeah, we will, which we, uh, we, we, we do try. We do try to be careful, you know. All right, fellas, well, listen, we'll look forward to any updates you have, and um, folks, stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome back from the break, everyone. We have Chad joining us. Chad, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm great. Tom, do you want to kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. Chad, welcome aboard, and thank you so much for contacting us about your encounter. And um, we didn't get a chance really to chat, so let's go ahead and we'll just dig right in and start from the beginning and tell us a little bit about what happened. Okay, well, I grew up in a, a, a small town in Mississippi, 
called uh, Oakland, Mississippi. It's a couple of hours from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And um, well, and it's called Oakland, Mississippi. Now, it's a very rural place, a lot of trees. I mean, uh, we didn't have a store or anything. I grew up on a, a gravel road. And um, we all lived on this gravel road together. We had all these trailers lined up, and they were all maybe about a mile apart from each other. We didn't have, like, street lights or anything. Everybody had a light that was like a front light that was attached above their door. So that was like when you went from one house to another, it was completely dark. So one day I was coming off my auntie's porch and it was me and my cousin. And my cousin is named Spanky. That was his nickname. So we're coming off the porch and this is right before it got dark. And my auntie lived about a mile away from my mom. And in between my mom and my auntie's house, there's this wooded area. And uh, my auntie had built a fence between that wooded area and and uh, her property. And on her and the, all the, the fence went all the way up and it made like an L shape. And there was a big tree at the end where the L shape was in the corner. And my cousin, my cousin who was a little older than me, my other cousin, not Spanky, but my other cousin who lived with my auntie, he was a little older than me, and he had a dog, a big Rottweiler named Jojo. And um, so I'm coming off the porch, and my cousin, he has to leave in a hurry. I think um, his mom had called my auntie and said, hey, I need you to get to the house. So he, we're coming off the porch, and he's running to his bike, and he has to leave. So he leaves. And so I'm standing at, at the foot of my auntie's porch, and I'm looking at Jojo first, and Jojo's just looking at me. So I turn around and I walk away from Jojo and I take about 10 steps and then Jojo starts out like really loud. And I turn around to look at Jojo because Jojo is usually friendly to me. He doesn't bark at me. So I'm, I'm looking at Jojo and Jojo isn't facing me anymore. He's looking in the wood line near the, near the, near the trees in the wood line on the other, on the other side of the fence on the other side of the fence is where the wood line is. And nobody know. I didn't never find out who land it was. We didn't never go over there. It was a post that says, you know, no trespassing or anything. That wasn't my auntie's land. So I turn around and I look at Jojo and he's barking facing the woods. So I turn my head to look at what Jojo is barking at. And when I look in the wood line and I look at this tree and I see a monkey about my height, it had to be about four feet tall. I was about nine or 10 years old at the time. This happened in the summer of 1996. And I look, and there's a monkey standing there about four feet high. And the reason I stood there about five to 10 seconds looking at him. And then I took off running home. I, I didn't look back. And I wasn't, I, I, I ran because it was unusual to me at the time. I, I didn't panic. I wasn't scared. I just ran home because it wasn't it wasn't usual to me. So when I got home and then the sun went down, that's when I got afraid. You know, I was like, oh, and I tried to tell, you know, I was the youngest of four kids and I have three older sisters. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the little boy and I'm trying to tell like my sisters, like, hey, I just seen the monkey from the land of the lost. And the reason I said the monkey from the land of the lost 
is if you go back in the 90s and you know go to Nickelodeon, or I can't remember what I was watching on, but there was a TV show back in the day called The Land of the Lost, where this family get, falls in the center of the earth or something like that. And when they get down there, they meet, they meet this little monkey man named Stink. And, and the reason the reason I go back and, and, and say that is because that's exactly what I seen that day on that summer day. He looked exactly like that little man called Stink off Land of the Lost, and I'll never forget that. And it was just a bunch of weird other things that went on around there. Eventually, JoJo ended up getting killed. Like all the, we we had a pet dog. We had two pet dogs that came up missing. JoJo was killed, and you know when these dogs come up missing, my mom was just like, "Oh, you know they probably ran off. You know, just wandered off in the woods and died. You know, we'll get you another one." And the second time it happened, it was like, oh, a dog probably just ate something and wandered off in the woods and died. It was always something just wandered off in the woods and died. Or it was, she, you know, she just always gave me some explanation. But um, it was hard growing up as a child telling people, like, you know, it's something out there. And they just laugh, like, oh, you need to stop watching those movies. And it's just, it's just hard being, it was just hard doing that growing up. Hey, Chad, I'm going to jump in for a second. So you're looking in and you see this monkey and i apologize I, I was distracted for a moment so i didn't quite pick up on it it was standing next to a tree or was it in the tree in my apologize. no it was it was it was like it was it was standing next to the tree and it was leaning out looking at me all i seen i seen his face his upper torso and his left hand yep and he was okay. looking and he and he was looking dead at me Okay, and so I he was he focused was, I, on you. Yes, yeah, he wasn't paying no attention to the dog. The dog was just, you know, going crazy. But he wasn't worried about the dog. He was focused on me. And, and I, would he, be he was already, yeah, he was already looking at me when I looked at him. Like the, JoJo didn't mean nothing to him. Like he he knew what a dog was, but he he was looking at me, and I, it, that lasted about five to ten seconds. And I just ran home. I never seen him again, but I knew he was there because of the weird stuff that used to go on. It was either him or somebody else out there with him. It was just weird stuff that used to go on. And the weird stuff is is the dogs disappearing uh, and the dogs disappearing. We had uh stuff used to go through our trash cans at night, so we we would. We, and to prevent this, we would put these big cinder block rocks on top of the trash can. We would, like, push it up against, like, a, a tree or something. We would have it, like, stabilized. We would put, like, you know, um, little uh, cords and stuff around it to, like, tie it to a tree. Like, you couldn't push it over. And we would come out the next day, and the cinder blocks would be, like, all moved, and all the trash would be pulled out. And... And this would happen to everybody's trash around the neighborhood. And then, you know, I, I would go and nobody paid attention to this because I would, be, I would be the one to have to go clean it up. My mom would be like, oh, that ain't none with them dogs. You know, go, go clean that trash up. And it would happen almost nightly. And I'm telling my mom, like, there's no way that that dog did that. You know, because the, the, when the dog is on his hind legs and I was a 10-year-old boy and the dog would be not into my waist. So how is this dog pulling this trash? 
out of this trail, but nobody listened to me. It, 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 it didn't make sense to nobody else because they wasn't dealing with it. Well, and dogs don't have hands. They got paws. And you got cinder yeah. blocks on there. And, and, you know, I just don't see dogs being able to work that out. You'd have a yeah. can maybe totally knocked over. But if I understand you correctly, the cinder blocks are picked up, what, set on the ground? Yes, they, they, they never, they, uh, what I was doing, it never took the rocks. They will be like, let's say like the rocks will be in the road, in the road and the, and the, um, the trash can would be like four, five feet. It would be farther away. Like a dog could not carry this rock and put it all. It's like they would grab the rock and just throw it out the way. Like, like this is nothing. It would be uh, all, you know, sometimes the rock would be broke. And then all the trash would be pulled out. And then we were having a get together one night and it was raining. And my cousin came in the house and he was, you know, he was wet and everything. And he was like, oh, I just seen a bear. And everybody laughed at him. They was like, oh, man, you know, because we was in there and, you know, they was drinking and everything. But I was, I remember exactly, I was sitting there playing my Nintendo in the corner because my mom was like, oh, when, you know, when we back here playing cards and drinking, you sit here and you play your game and whatnot. So my cousin came in and he was like, I just seen a bear. And everybody was laughing and talking, oh, man, sit down, man, grab a beer, we'll sit down. And I was thinking to myself, but my mama tells me not to, you know, interrupt them talking. I was thinking, I was like, he's seen that thing. He's seen it. But I never said nothing to him. How old is your cousin in relation to you? Older, younger? He was older than me. He had to be when I was his when I was this age. He had to be at least thirty something. And he walked in. He was like, I, I, I seen a bear. And then you know, after a few minutes, I can tell by the look on his face. And then after a few minutes, he kind of calmed down and went you know went to mingling and everything. But he probably didn't even see. He probably seen a big one. He probably seen the dad or something like that. But I know he's seen it. Yeah, let and me I ask have you a, this. Have you uh, had a chance ever to talk to him and say, hey, what about that bear? Was it a bear or not? No, I, I, I never got a chance to, to say nothing to him about it because every time I approached somebody about what was going on with me, they shot me down. It was they, Nobody took it serious. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going, well, you know, I, you know, I, it wasn't to the fact that, you know, I was terrified of what was going on because what I seen, I didn't see like, you know, some eight foot tall giant like I hear. But I, what I seen was the monkey off Land of the Lost. And the reason why I wasn't terrified because on the Land of the Lost, monkey, you know, stink is friendly. They call them stink. So every time I would think about it, I would think about the monkey off the Land of the Lost. And that's what kind of kept me sane about the situation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um did you did you get a I guess what I what I'm wondering is how much light was in the forest and did you get a chance to like see facial features how much was there any hair on the face what color was it yeah um, you know anything like that uh, the color of it and the exact color you know you you know how you spray WD-40 on something that's rusting and you know that uh, the liquid that falls off of it yeah right right you know that kind of, that kind of rusted color he was kind of like a a brown before it turns to red, you know? And it seemed like he had a big forehead. You know, it seemed like he, like his hairline was receding, but he was just a, like a little man. And it's, he had hair all over his body. And yeah, he, 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 he just looked like the monkey. He looked exactly like the monkey off land of the law. Exactly like him. I don't know what people made that show, but they hit the nail 
on the head. And he was focused on you. And that. Yes, sir. Okay. And that's got to be a little bit unnerving. It's like, you know, I, I would think if I'm in your shoes, I'm going to be wondering why you're looking at me. What's your intention? You know, am I going to be in, you know, in danger? Uh all I did, was, I, all I did was run. Once I, I once I realized what was going on, it, it, I, I just ran. I, it, I was out of control of the situation at that point. I just ran. Okay, so, and you, do you still live in the same area or roughly the same area in Mississippi? Yes, after I got after I got out of the military, um, I moved back to Mississippi. But I don't stay in Oakland right now. I live in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is about three hours away from where I've seen that. Okay. Um, what I'm wondering is, have you heard of any other accounts or legends or lore, any other history, any other people in the area that have, um, you know, encountered this? Is there any history of these things in the area that you know of? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Back in um, when I was, uh, I remember when I was growing up, my auntie, she uh, she lived, you know, uh, I think it was like a town over, like the next town over, and she used to come visit. And I remember one day, um, they were all laughing and talking, and then she said, "Hey, uh, I seen the abominable snowman," and you know, I, and it always was a joke. And she always tells, she's like, "Oh, I seen a abominable snowman in my backyard." And we, they would always make fun of her, but you know she died maybe four or five years ago. But I was listening to another podcast called, um, um, I think it was on YouTube, but the guy's name is M.K. Davis. And uh, I was watching his videos, and he was in Paris, Texas, and they had a white Bigfoot. And I'm thinking, like I said, oh my God, you know, maybe you know, maybe Aunt Margaret wasn't lying. You know, maybe she did. You know, she was thinking she was seeing a bone little snowman. But she was seeing an actual Bigfoot. Well, yeah, and they're they're one and the same. I mean, they're they're the abominable snowman or the Yeti um, is just a variant of what we have. Um, well, that's interesting. So you've got a, a cousin, and now is he still alive, or do, um, do you yes. in touch with yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. Yes, he's he's still alive, but um, I haven't talked to him and. Man, since I got back from the military, that was some years ago. But he still lives near the area, or something like. I think he still lives near the area. But the, but the, it's it's just hard in in this area, in the southeast, especially Mississippi. When you bring up things like Sasquatch or, or ghosts or anything, it's like auto, automatically shut down. You you're considered a nutcase or something like that. I'm it's sure. It's so hard to yeah. It's so hard to connect with somebody about this situation because trust me i search for people uh you know i try to ask questions like you know you know i even got the sticker on my truck you know bigfoot research and everything but you it's like people are so they won't i don't know it's frowned upon down here it's made fun of it's not taken seriously at all i, I don't know why more people need to do this it needs to be answered well i agree with you 100 percent. and the reason i ask is you know to the west, you've got Arkansas, and there's a lot of activity in Arkansas. And then you've got Tennessee, uh, which is another state to the, you know border in there. And there's a lot of we have a gentleman 
Um, Will, who's the guy? Is it Chris in Tennessee? It's Chris. Yeah, and, yeah we, and, he, and we actually should have an update from him next week, I believe. Yeah, he gets a lot of activity, but Arkansas... Uh, Will, isn't that where you and I were talking about the movie Legend of Boggy Creek? Was that filmed in Arkansas? Or? Yes, it was. Okay. So, and you've got the, um, I'm just, I'm looking at the map here. I apologize. So you've got the, um, I believe it's the uh, Smoky Mountains or the Blue Ridge Mountains that go through Tennessee. Blue Ridge Mountains. Okay. And there's a lot of sightings there as well as, you know, all the way up into Kentucky and West Virginia. So they have, in, in my mind, I'm just thinking, you know, they probably have historic precedents going back millennia into the area. I mean, that's why they're there in the first place. But um, there's just some regions, uh, both, uh, you know, both in the U.S. and in other parts of the world where the topic is just considered, uh, it's, because it's not mainstream, it's kind of a taboo topic. Yes, yes, it is. I just found it interesting when you say your cousin came in. He said, I saw a bear, and you were reading his body language, I'm assuming, and you're thinking it wasn't a bear. Yeah, because, you know, if 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 he would have seen a bear, you know, you would see, a, if, especially out there where we were, and I played in those woods a lot as a kid, I never seen a bear. I I I I never seen a bear, and I could just tell if 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 he seen a bear by the way he, he was acting, you know, it, it was just a bear. But you see, he seen a bear before, you know. But it, it's just the way he was acting, and he was like he was trying to get my other cousin. Like he was like, we gotta go. We like let's go back and see if we can see it again, you know. And they was like, oh no, sit down, sit down. He was like, oh, I gotta go see, and they was like, you know, they talked him out of it. But I knew I was like he had to see one of those things out here. He had he had to, and then it, it was like eleven, like it was late night. The sun was down. It was raining. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so it's a very interesting. And you just had that one encounter, and it was standing next to a tree, kind of peeking at you, looking at you, which is yeah. Very common, uh, common behavior. A lot of witnesses. I mean, there's there's a term for it. It's called tree peeking, where they just sort of snap in and out of a tree, or just use a tree for cover, you know, while they, you know, look around or whatever. So because he he he's he seen, he seen me looking at him. Like when he seen me look at him, he didn't try to like duck back behind the tree. He sat there and he 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 matched my gaze. So I stood there for like five to ten seconds, and that was all I could take. So did you have to, uh, did you spend the night uh, or did, no, this wasn't your house. This was your aunt's house. Yes, this is my, this is my aunt's house. Uh, oh, okay. My, my, I, yeah, I lived about a half a mile away. Not even a half a mile. So the question I have like I, is, did you have to walk back home or ride your bike or whatever? Yes. I, yeah. That's where I went. When I took off running, I went straight home. See, I didn't have a bike. My cousin had a bike. So I, I I was on foot. So when I seen that, I just ran, and I, I I was I I you know, I made it to the house fairly quick. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, 
it's you know I chuckle now, but well, this there's it kind of reminds me a little bit of TW's story. Although, you know, the the kid that was he had one behind his bike, but what caught my attention was the lack of streetlights. It's very dark. Yeah, I, I've been there. It is dark. Yeah, there were there were there were no street lights. And all like this this road was um probably wasn't even paved, it was gravel. The only like if you if we didn't if we didn't go the front light you the only light you would have was the moonlight. It would be nothing. Yeah. Wow. Well Chad, I wanna thank you for contacting us with your encounter. Yeah, very interesting. Really appreciate it. What was that again, Chad, that your podcast name? Chad, if you can give us the name of your podcast and the contact info, if you'd like people to reach out to you, we'd appreciate that. Yes, sir. My um, podcast name is Cryptic Minded. You can find it on Spotify and Anchor. And also you can email me at mrdoc at 96 at gmail.com. That's M-R-D-A-H-C 96 at gmail.com. And I'm in southern Mississippi, and I'm here for if you need me. And we'll put that information in the description to you, folks. Um, so, Tom, do you have anything else, or are we going to go ahead and wrap this up? Yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. And, Chad, um, I don't know if you got this before we got kicked off, but stay in touch. And Absolutely. if you get any updates, yeah, we'd like to hear from you. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And if you got questions for us, by all means, you know, come on to one of the Q and A's, and we'll uh, we'll sit around, we'll chew the fat for a while. Oh yes, sir. And and you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna um, head back up to uh, Oakland, Mississippi, and check it out. My sister went uh, maybe a month ago, and she was like, "It's the woods are so thick, you can't even get back there." She's like, "Mom's house is empty, and it's just it's nobody even out there." Oh. So I'm just gonna go out there and just yeah, I'm gonna go out there and look around. Yeah, give us an update. Oh, yes, sir. And take a camera. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yes, I have, uh, I, have a, I have a dash cam and everything. Oh, oh very good. good. Good for you, man. Yeah, yeah dash cam and a four-wheel drive truck, so I'm going to go see what I can find. You're set. All right. Man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chad. Thanks All again, right. buddy. All right. Good night. Thank you, guys. Good night. Thanks, Chad. Bye for now. No problem. Well, we appreciate Chad coming on. He was a great guest. Uh, so we're going to sort of do from here on out the rest of this segment, kind of like we did last week. Uh, a few questions. Um, you know, we'll discuss things from John Green's books, and we'll just kind of we'll kind of see where it goes. So, what do you got, Tom? Okay, uh, this is from Janae. So, Janae, thank you. And I've spoken with you in the past. Janae wants to know, are there any reports of Bigfoot in South America like here in North America? And I thought that was a very good question. There actually is. And, and Janae, also, we need to have you on uh, record you. So uh, she's got some encounters we're going to record here. So anyway, yeah, there are stuff, are some things from South America. In fact, um, and I can't remember the year off the top of my head, there was one, it was called Deloitte's Ape. And if I could remember what book I put it in, I could uh, quote it. But I, I want to say it was late tw 1920s where a group of French scientists went into South America and actually ran into a male and female creature. 
uh, and then they were throwing things at him, and he ended up shooting the mail. And uh, they took a picture of it sitting on a crate, and uh, it was laughed away um, in England, I believe. But um, it never got any traction. The story didn't. But there are other accounts, even of the large ones like there are here, and I can't remember off the top of my head what they call them. Um, we'll have to dig that information up and bring it up on another show. But, yeah, there there are stories of things in South America. Well, you know, and, and I always found the Deloitte um, interesting. Here you got a photograph. You know, people say, well, how come not photographs of these things? Well, the Deloitte isn't exactly what we have here in the U.S., but correct me if I'm wrong, it's still, it's huge, it's large, but it's bipedal. It was bipedal, yes. And it wasn't giant. I mean, it was, it would have been a smaller version. Um, sorry, I was trying to look to see. I know I put it in one of my own books. But yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, it, was, and it was dismissed by somebody who just thought the idea of something like that was ludicrous. You know, with zero um, information to go on to, you know, back the story or deny it. Yeah, that's a really uh, okay. dry sarcasm, but I just really can't appreciate enough, you know, academics who they weren't there. They probably, that guy had probably never been there and just, you know, offhand just dismissed the whole thing. Yeah, it's uh, the, I'm looking at the article. It was actually from June 15th, 1929. Um, and they call it, in the article, it calls it Anthropoid Apes. Um, by Francis Deloy. So that's why it was called Deloy's Ape. It was named after him. But uh, it's clearly no uh, ape that would be in South America. I mean, the hands and feet look very simian-like. You know, the the hands and feet look both all both look like feet. You know, when you look at uh, some monkeys. But this clearly isn't. Uh, something you would see in South America, especially the size. There was actually another photograph. It was on, uh, gosh, I want to say it was one of the old uh, In Search Of shows, you know, from the 70s, where they had, uh, you know, it showed the, 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 the standard crate, and I don't know what the standard crate size was, but apparently that was used for scale. That's why they propped it up on the crate. And then they had a, a Frenchman, you know, a standard-sized Frenchman sitting on the crate. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. But the man, but, but but the man was roughly um, the size of the creature sitting on the box. If you compare the two, yeah. And I thought it was around, like I don't know. I'm just guessing, but you know, six feet tall, five and a half, six feet. It was actually okay. I've actually got it here. It says according to Deloy's later report, 1920, while camping near. And, I, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, the Terror River, two large creatures approached the group. Initially, Deloitte thought they were bears, uh, but then he noted they were monkey-like, holding onto shrubs and branches. The creatures, one male, one female, seemed angry, uh, said Deloitte, howling and gesturing, then defecating into their hands and flinging the feces at the expedition. Fearing for their safety, the expedition shot and killed the male. The female then fled. Deloitte and his companions recognized that they had encountered something unusual. The animals resembled a smiter monkey, but was much larger, um, 1.57 meters tall. So, you know, you're talking about something that's roughly six feet in height. Definitely not a spider monkey. 
And I, I got to say, you know, defecating and throwing that at you, that's a capital offense. <laughs> well, and it's also something when you go to the zoo that, that chimps and other other uh, primates do. They'll, they'll defecate in the hands and throw it at people. Uh, it also goes on to say that uh, compared to larger largest spider monkeys, which are just over a meter tall, uh, Deloitte's counted 32 teeth, which most New World monkeys have 36 teeth, and noted noted that the creature had no tail. Um, it says they posed the creature by seating it on a crate, propping a stick under its chin. After taking a single photograph, Deloitte reported they skinned the creature, intending to keep its hide and skull. Both items were later abandoned by the troubled expedition. According to other reports, more photographs were taken, but were either lost in a flood during the capsizing of the scientist's boat. So. Well, and real, real quick for our listeners out there, the, what is the difference between a monkey and an ape? Um, that's a good one off the top of my head. I can't remember. Uh, it's largely size and also the part of the world they're in. But Because, uh, well, there's old world, old world monkeys and new world monkeys. Actually, we need to bring John on to have him give us some real detailed information. I, I'm not... That's one of my areas I'm not that familiar with, but uh, I that put that put that article in my book Bigfoot Evidence. If anybody's interested in that, it's on Amazon. So um, I've got a couple of pictures from that article in there. Yeah. So again, there's another evidence photograph of these creatures, and what separates it from all the other apes out there and monkeys is the fact that it's bipedal. So the, the head, you know, it's, it, the spinal cord is going to the bottom of the skull as opposed to through the back. Is that correct? Yeah, it would, it's, I mean, it's the, the feeder. It's, it's interesting when you look at the picture because, um, you would think that it would be more of a knuckle walker, you know, like chimps and gorillas are because the feet look a lot like, their hands they're the same kind of a device so to speak uh, but they said that they were walking bipedally so um, that would indicate some kind of a intermediary stage oh, good good point well I've wondered about that intermediary stage because we have countless reports of Sasquatch that are both Sometimes they get on all fours, and and then they'll get up and walk bipedally upright, you know, like a like a human or hominid. And I've often wondered why would they do that, uh, or I guess their their physiology just lends itself to having that ability to be equally comfortable in both positions. Well, it's probably some kind of a leftover trait. Um, I was just thinking, you know, when you look at the picture of Deloitte's ape and its feet and hands, you know, they're they're alike, like when you see monkeys and, and even chimps. You know, their feet are quite a bit a lot like their hands. Although with a chimp, they are they're different, but, uh, you know, other monkeys, their, their hands and feet resemble one another quite a bit, uh, as does this creature. So i i would suspect that this creature was probably if they're bipedal is probably in the early stages of being bipedal where when you look at a sasquatch their feet are much more like ours which to me would indicate 
the later stages of that development, you know, towards, you know, full bipedal walking. So, you know, when they go on all fours, it's probably a leftover trait. All right. We've got a, our good friend, uh, Fred Sieber. I call him Professor Sieber, a school teacher in Okinawa. Fred wants to know, <clears throat> he's got a question. Um, he's got a friend who's going to sketch an eight-foot-tall Sasquatch for him. He goes, my understanding is eight foot is a good average. You would agree with that, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, <clears throat> he goes, if not, let me know. No, Fred, you're spot on. Eight foot is very good. But he wanted to know what the measurements uh, of the legs, torso, arms, and width should be. So we're kind of, I think we're looking for some ratios here. Uh, he wants to put this in his classroom so his students can see how big one of these creatures can be. And I actually think that's an excellent idea. I, I should send him a, fo- uh, a copy of the photograph. There's an artist, uh, Palmer Murphy, who did um, an artwork of my first encounter. And it's very good. Uh, he, he really did a great job. And it shows me from the back, you know, in front of the creature, with the creature sort of giving me the once over <laughs> um but the size ratio is really good in that picture so maybe that would help him i don't know as far as you know exact numbers that's pretty hard tough to come by um but it but it shows in there you know arm length and the width of the body of the torso and and kind of torso length and legs because they're different than in humans the torso is longer um of course the the mass is much wider um the upper leg is actually longer in the Sasquatch than humans, and the, and the lower leg is shorter by comparison. So, which probably aids in walking on all fours when he decided to do that. But um, uh, and the long arms, of course, are longer than ours. But Fred, I want I'll... to talk a little, bit, a little bit about the the torso. These things are just massive. Everybody talks about, and they just they're emphatic. It's huge, and what they're referring to is the bulk, the mass of the like, chest. Of the it's like standing person. in front of a tree trunk. You know, a big one. Yes. Fred, I'll send you I'll send you that picture so you can get a, a pretty good idea uh, of what I'm talking about. It, it would be easier to go off that, you know, to make your recreation than to try to do it by measurements. And Fred, if we actually get a body um, we're going to stuff it in ice and put it on a, on a boat and send it to you. So, <laughs> but we won't skin it like Deloitte, you know, did with his ape. And we're not going to skin it and try to keep the skull because it'll be lost when our boat capsizes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I think that's a really good, uh, visual aid for, you know, just, having that so you can you can look at it. it's one thing to try to reconstruct that in your mind but it's all another thing when you got uh a statue or a painting or a drawing or something that's proportionally life-size in front of you yeah i mean and, and in the picture i was 16 at the time so i was probably about 5'10 at that time and uh and the creature is about eight feet tall and it's pretty pretty well uh crafted piece of art that he did yeah, I've seen it. It's a, it's an excellent, excellent drawing. He says he's actually going to make a 3D model of that, too. Oh, well, that'd be fantastic. Um, so when you're, I, I've asked you this a hundred times, but, <clears throat> you know, you walk through, 
and you see the um, you know the old I guess there's a maple tree, old yeah. growth maple, and here's Bigfoot standing looking at you. And you said that you sensed that it it was not happy with your presence. Is that right? Well, it's yeah, it was the feeling I got because the light wasn't great, so you couldn't really see facial features, I mean, that well. But, um, you know, when I stepped into that clearing and, and the creature was right there, it was like, it, it, was, it was almost feeling like, you know, when you step into some place that's really frosty and cold outside and it's just like dead air that was that's how it felt and and the creature really didn't it stopped moving you know the the foot that was really the only part of it that was moving it was moving leaves around and uh, and it stopped moving and just sort of just sort of stared or glared at me I, I, that was my impression but uh, i i didn't didn't gather that it was any sort of a happy encounter <laughs> right well and you sent me a picture of your of your yard at the time and i'm surprised how close it was to the porch to the house that was not that far no and you can see how thick the brush was there yeah exactly so i just you know you got to wonder what was it doing there it obviously it knew your dog was there the dog knew it was there the dog you know made the wise decision to skedaddle well, I, I mentioned before, I think, because where the pro it was the proximity was close to our barn. And and the barn was all open on one side. It was covered of course, but it was open. Um you know, so the cows could get in there and they could they had uh stanchions where they could go in and eat hay and, and grain and such. But uh, you know, so it was open, there wasn't anything locked up. And, and I think any food that was out there, we had food for the pigs. Of course, the pigs were out there on the side of the barn. Um, and I don't remember at that time if we still had chickens or not. But, uh, you know, in the same, right next to the barn, we had a really large building that was a chicken coop. And we had, I think, 30 or 40 chickens in there. Um, so there was lots there was lots to attract something like that. You know, that it could, could have come up there and gotten a very easy meal. You know, we've talked about this in the past but that had to have been the reason i mean what else you know they're, they're they're like any other creature you see in the woods when you see something in the woods deer mountain lion bear whatever you know what it's doing it's looking for food see and we also had some you know 100 year old apple trees in the yard uh that were really big trunks i mean these things were geez you know at least a couple feet across easily and um uh, you know, massive producers and they, and they were different types of apples. Each tree was. So, you know, one of them would produce in the summer, let you took, like you typically think about apples ripening, but there were some on the other trees that would produce, uh, that would ripe, ripe later in the year. Uh, one was a winter apple. And I think, geez, I want to say it was like December when the apples were ready on that tree. Uh, so, you know, they were sort of spaced out and, and I'm sure the people who homesteaded that property, planted them for that reason so they would would be spaced out um you know so i mean there was even things like that for the creatures to come and get in abundance i know why they're there i i got it now 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 that i heard the story about the apple trees we've got one in our backyard there's a lot of i'm assuming there's a lot of them on the ground you got a lot of windfall on the ground and this was you said what september october it would have been about october it was around hunting season yeah 
Okay, so you got apples on the ground. What do they do? They ferment. Oh, sure. We have the same. We don't have Bigfoot in the backyard, but we have muskrats, nutria, raccoons, possums, and you can hear them at night. And they munch on these things. Oh, yeah. They get yeah. soused. Then, then they get into fights. And I'm telling you, <laughs> that's exactly what these these Bigfoot were there. They're there to get their uh, their fall they were, get, they were gonna get drunk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Bigfoot hot toddies. <laughs> right? I mean, they don't have their own stills, they don't have their own distilleries, but nature does the job for them. I'm telling you, that's that's what was going on. Yeah, we we never picked up the apples off the ground. We just let them, you know, just rot where they were. There was no point. Well, these things are there to take care of that problem for you. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. I mean. But yeah, there was there was plenty of stuff there. You know, I never thought about it until in recent years about all the stuff that was available. But sure, easy pickings. That's exactly what was going on. Same thing with the bear. The bear wasn't after the kids. The bear was after the bees. Yeah, yeah. The bear didn't want us when we were kids out there and by the swamp. It wanted the beehives. <laughs> oh, good thing for us. Right. Oh, exactly. It's a good thing we're not as sweet. <laughs> right? <laughs> and and the good thing it's a black bear because they, for the most part, tend to be skittish anyway. Yeah, usually. Um, yeah, and they're very handsome animals. You know, that, at least the ones that I've seen, they got a very silky, well-kept coat, and they've got that kind of a blonde snout. Uh, yeah, very good-looking animals. I was just wanting to run. I wasn't admiring. Yes. Right. No, I'm thinking because the times that I've seen him, I've been in a car or a truck or something. So. Oh, we, I was standing there face to face with it. Yeah. Different story. Different story. Yeah. So one of the questions that comes up from time to time, and it's one of my favorites, are the type fours. And why do we think that it's very possible that they're really not part of the Bigfoot family at all, but something... Uh, very entirely different well because the parameters are different uh, you know behaviorally they're different uh, physically they're different than than what we think of typically as a sasquatch um, oftentimes they're much smaller in stature closer to human um, don't have hair in their faces where the other types do um just a lot of that, you know, proportions are closer to human proportions than, you know, when we look at the Patterson film, for example, you know, uh, those proportions are different than what we see in the type fours. And I have to wonder, what is it with both Sasquatch and the type fours that they are so aggressive towards humans? I mean, the Minnesota Iceman, the Air Force captain, it saw him. What does it do? Does it take off? No, 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 no. It's charging after him. Yeah, the other two took off. It it charged him. Um, you know, I mean, you could you could put it on territoriality. I, I suppose that's one answer, but uh, it could be more likely the way that you know the things that humans have done over all the years. You know, being a very aggressive creature that we are, uh, maybe it's just a, a response. You know, that they've learned sort of a. Uh, reflexive response to our presence. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's uh, I like the territory aspect because they're you know primates, us included, are very territorial. Well, and here's another possibility too. I mean, you know, competition for food. You know, I, I mention the Hugh Brown story often because it was it was behaviorally the characteristics were seemed really clear cut in that one, and it was also the first time I interviewed somebody that had had a mock charge, so that one kind of stuck in my mind, but. You know, there was the deer involved. You know, apparently it was chasing the creature up the hill. There must have been another one nearby. Of course, I found evidence there were several of them in the area. Um, but the deer ran over next to Huey, and he said, I could have reached out and touched it if I wanted to. It, it was just totally didn't care that it was that close to me. And then the creature, you know, screeched one more time before it came out of the wood line. The deer bolted, and then the creature came out, saw Hugh and made a dead run at him. Um, and he froze to his, uh, benefit, you know, because the creature stopped about 10 feet away from him and they kind of looked each other over and then the creature got bored. He said it looked bored and he turned and walked away off to the brush again. You know, that always blows me away when I hear that. Cause we've heard that, you know, a few times where people says, and it just got bored a few times. And the same thing at the, at the Yakult thing with the Goldheimer family, you know, the, the girls, um, their their 15 year old daughter told me that you know her and her, her friend went out and we're gonna give some grain to the horse and it wasn't the horse that came up out of the pasture it was one of the creatures and it followed them to the house and they, they actually you know tore the screen door part way off its hinges getting in the house and they banged pots and pans trying and screaming trying to get the creature to go away and it just would look through the window at them and they said finally it just kind of got a bored look on its face to walk off in the darkness but never is it reciprocal the creature may be bored the people are never bored that's probably true the girls weren't bored i'm sure the guy who had that thing run up on him do a bluff charge i'm sure he wasn't bored i'm sure their anxiety levels were fairly high <laughs> adrenaline just maxed out i want to go back to that one for a second because you said something that um you may have mentioned before and i just didn't pick up on you said there was evidence of multiple creatures in the area. What can you elaborate on that? There was. Um, he, of course, only saw the one, but I did a search of the area after he took us there and showed us where you know the events took place. And there was a uh, there was kind of a knoll inside the tree line, maybe a hundred feet high. This little hill, and I climbed up there to take a look just to see. And I found a spot. There was a circle of bones. Now, now the bones weren't arranged in a circle. It was, uh, there were piles of bones. And I, I want to say, going back in memory, there were five places, like where five creatures had sat and eaten and, and left the bones in a pile. So that led me to believe there were multiple creatures there. Oh, now this is a first. I had not heard that before. And... We have some people that you and I have spoken with in the past. We're not going to mention who they are, but a couple of them. And they've been out and about um, here in the Cascades. And they have found, you know, like a pile of jaw bones or mm -hmm. a pile of all sorts of bones. So I don't know. I wish I still had my pictures of that. I don't anymore, but I should probably have one of our artists, you know, sketch because um, I remember clearly what it looked like. You're talking about the ones on the knoll, right? Yes. 
Okay. And then I'm going to try to jog your memory a little bit. Um, you had gone, and I don't know where it was, but you had climbed up to an area that was, it may have been in Washington State, very high up. You could see all all around, and you had found piles of bones there as well. Is that right? I'm trying to think. Yeah, I believe it was. I'm trying to remember the incident. Usually I'm pretty good when somebody jogs my memory, but I, I found so many things out. Um, I'll have to think about it. I don't, re don't remember off the top of my head. Well, it's it's uh, my fragmented memory trying to reconstruct it. But, but it would make sense that you would be up on an area where you can see in all directions, and they can just sit there and feast away on whatever creature they've captured. Well, that's what I thought about that particular one with Hugh Brown, because... Uh, when I saw it, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Now, you know, if, if I were going to be in a defensive position, you know, I wanted to see any threats coming around, that's the kind of place I would go. And sure enough, when I got up to the top of that, that's what I found. And you could see the top of it wasn't very wide across. It was maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 feet across. So, you know, a group of creatures or people or whoever or whatever was up there, you know, could look around and it wasn't people obviously because there were there were all these deer bones there was a lot of deer bones it was not from just one animal it would have been from geez i'll bet there were probably three or four deer represented there were that many bones well that's interesting and you talk about a defensive position and you know i just don't think of these creatures as being in need of any kind of a defensive position but you know maybe they are i mean there's really nothing no, but in, in nature, you know, animals are going to look for a position where they can see, you know, any, any kind of threat approaching. Or they're going to hide their kills, things like that. Yeah, well, it makes sense. And, and who knows, maybe also a good area to spot out opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are always, you know, that's why we do it in the military is, you know, taking the high ground, and there's a reason for that because it's more easily defended. You can see better. Uh, it, it's just better all around. You know, in any kind of a posture out and about. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, have you ever stayed? Have you maintained any kind of contact with uh, Hugh over the years? I did for a time after you know I interviewed him. Uh, but he moved around a bit, so I lost contact a few years, a few years after that time. Now, is he the only witness that you've spoken to where part of the part of the encounter included a deer running up to them, almost as if they're trying to get protection from the no, person? That was probably the first time I heard it, but I, I've interviewed people since then that had very similar accounts. You know, I've often wondered about that. Are they, because, of course, naturally, they're not going to do that. Deer's never going to run up to you. But if it does, um, is it trying to use you as a decoy or looking for just cover? I just, you know, we don't have an answer, but I'm just curious. No idea. Maybe maybe they think we're, we're competition for them. I, I don't know. No idea. Yeah, so if you're out hiking in the woods, folks, and a deer suddenly bolts out of the tree line and stands next to you uh you might have some other 
issues you're going to have to contend with. I'll tell you what, there was an incident one time that made me wonder that we were hiking up this road. We were searching this one area um, south of Mount St. Helens. And I can't remember how many of us there were, three or four in the group. And um, and the area had been logged, you know, a number of probably 20 years before. So it was all grown back, you know, the, the fir trees. And they were maybe 20, I don't think they were 25 feet, about 20 feet tall. And they were really thick. You know, when they're young like that, they, they're, they're still very thick uh, before they get old enough to kind of start getting a little spacing between them. Um, and I don't know what happened. There was nobody else around up there. But there was a, a group of elk inside that thicket, and they bolted out at us. And, and we got lucky that we didn't get run over. Because whatever something spooked them in there, and and there were probably half a dozen elk in there that just come bolting out right at us, out of that tree line. You would think they would have heard humans and gone the other direction. Something something spooked them. Well, let's think about it. I mean, yeah. you've got you got mountain lions, maybe you know maybe a wolf or something like that, or this creature. I don't think there were any wolves in there at that time. That was still back in the 80s, but... Um, it's a pretty short list Yeah, of what I, it could be. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm not sure. I, I don't. Maybe they'd be afraid of a, a cougar. I, I'm not sure, but something spooked him when they all just come bolting out of that tree line at us. And you know, <laughs> if, if you're in that situation and something spooked them... Probably a good time to leave yourself. And you know, it made me think of something a, a friend of ours told us yesterday. You know, this inst- you know, it was either the underwear changing moment or, like he said, picking cornets out of your underwear. <laughs> right. Ah, <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, um, I had to say that because he'll appreciate it. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> no. Um, well, and even now, looking up at, for example, Washington State, I guess they do have a little bit of an encroachment of the gray wolves coming in. But again, what do you have for apex predators? Uh, bears, I don't, you know, bears are they're scavengers and they eat berries and stuff like that. But I don't think they go out and kill animals and eat them. I mean, sometimes I, I know, you know, elk will bolt. They'll just do kind of crazy things sometimes, but. It just sort of made me wonder, you know, I, I didn't think Bigfoot. I mean, we were in the area looking for the creatures, obviously, but um, I, it just kind of struck me as odd. Yeah. Well, and I've been around elk. and They're just, they're huge, you know, they're, oh, they yeah. have very large racks. <laughs> yeah, it kind of it uh, scared the crap out of us, if you know what I mean. Yeah, because if you're in an area like that where it's just the... Uh, you don't have any big trees that you can stand behind? No. We were out in the open on this road. There was nowhere to go. So did they go next to you or they around ran, you? They ran right across the road, right through us. Nice. And they, they were running it as fast as they could. They bolted. Wow. I mean, all we could do is stand there. <laughs> there was nowhere to go. And thank goodness they uh, they didn't run over anybody. Yeah, no kidding. Did you guys stick around and continue your investigation? No, or we, you... we decided to get back in the vehicles and leave. <laughs> we, we didn't want any more incidents like that happening. Yeah, that would really be, uh, 
Yeah, I don't think I've had anything quite like that happen, but uh, I think the closest thing I had was a friend of mine and I were checking out some area by a river, and we've been standing there and we're checking out the river and then walked down this gravel road about 60 feet. No, not even that. 40 feet. 40 feet. I turn around and look back, and the tree that we were standing by, right behind the tree, is this huge, I don't know, oak or not an oak, but probably a maple. Uh, this massive bobcat just sauntered across the road. He must have been there the whole time. And this was this bobcat was prob not quite as big as a, a collie or something. Oh, that's big enough. Yeah, it was big enough. Yeah. And of course, me being the idiot, I go, he, the thing went into some ferns. I wanted to get a better look at it. So I go running over there <laughs> and he's, he's gone, long gone, oh, which yeah. is probably just as well. Probably a good thing. Okay. So we mentioned that we're going to do a little bit from John Green's books. What do you got, Tom? Well, he mentions in, and this is the Sasquatch file, the Green book. He talks about gestures and that's a question that we've had come up in the past is are you aware of the creatures using gestures as a communication amongst themselves uh, either for some sort of coordinated um, you know activity that they're doing and there's even I'm just looking at this here I'm sure they uh, probably said, do I mean it, that's kind of a given I think but uh, what does he list in there Okay, so he's talking about, now this is a, a sort of a, he says, one of the creatures is heavy, covered with short gray-brown hair. At the approach of his car, is approaching somebody's car, <clears throat> um, it raised both of its arms as if in a surrender. It had a face like a wizened old man. And that's, I mean, that's just the extent of the report, but... You know, it's it's obviously trying to communicate something when they're moving their hands and their arms about. I, it made me think, well, there were a couple of stories. There was another one from one of his books. Uh, and this happened, you know, quite a bit before, um, you know, Patterson got the film. I, I can't remember the year offhand, but um, the story was uh, the guy went up to that area. He was looking for uh, the work crew or whatever he was doing up there. But the, one of the creatures actually had laid a log or something across the road and he went out to move it and here the creature come charging the car and um and it made a number of gestures doing the same kind of thing but and it would stalk back and forth you know like it was it would charge him and then it would move off and it was pretty bizarre behavior but he finally uh evaded the creature and got away but um yeah sometimes well, that would be unnerving it was i, I can't remember doggone story off the top, top of my head I, I'd quote it but uh, and do you know what's I was trying to remember which book that I had it in that's what happens when you have a few in print uh, you can't remember the stories which one was which in there um, yeah I don't remember off the top of my head it was it was from geez it was quite quite a few years before well, of course you know that was that was sort of the end of the, the whole bluff creek thing in 67 when they got the film but so this was quite a bit this would have been early 60s oh okay so 
Yeah, definitely before the PG film. Sorry, folks, I can't remember the details, but uh, it's an interesting story. Yeah, well, and it's interesting that these things, because we have heard other reports how they um, do seem to use uh, hand gestures. We had somebody who is, um, you know, they've seen them where they, you know, they would just, it seemed like there was some sort of coordination amongst other ones with hand gestures. Um, okay. So I got another one here, and I like this one. This is um, from John Green's book. A sailor from a U.S. submarine rode to Dr. Steve Polly, who is a San Diego uh, research researcher. There was a late-night sighting where uh, there was a new church being built. He said he and three other people were sitting in a car when one of them saw a motion 75 to 100 feet in front of them. This is the part that's interesting. They switched on the lights and illuminated a white-furred animal seven to eight feet high standing erect with its arms hanging almost to its knees and immediately headed into the woods. And the reason I say it's interesting is because you've talked about driving down with your lights off Mm -hmm. and then just suddenly switching them on. And I don't think you'd recommend doing that in an area where you got a cliff on one side probably um, wouldn't be a good idea <laughs> <laughs> but just the fact that the the lights are so important to all animals they're going to pick up on that more so than the sound well and i think that's that's a misconception a lot of times people have they think that the sound of a car or the sound of people is what spooks the wildlife and it's really not it's a light Yes, it is. And there was, I don't know if you can still buy them, but for a time you may have seen them. You could buy these, uh, it was, a, for lack of a better word, a whistle that you'd mount on your bumper of oh, your car. right, right. To scare the deer away. Didn't work. Didn't work, no. The idea was, you know, so that you're not going to hit a deer and, Give you know, them a heads up that you were Yeah, approaching. exactly. So, um, but I just thought that was interesting that, you know, when they flick the lights on, you know, there it was. Oh, yeah. Well, it kind of, it kind of goes along with, um, you know, what we, what I experimented with. Okay. Yeah. You said you'd drive down a road, you had your lights off, you'd flick them on and then you'd see what? Well, I, I always wondered why I didn't see anything at night. I drive through those areas and it was the area where I had my second sighting and there was a lot of wildlife in there. And I always thought, well, shoot, I'm never seeing any animals up here at night. You would think that's when they're out, you know? So what I ended up doing, I, th- I, uh, I had an old Chevy blazer and I, uh, did some reworking of the wiring on the lights and I, I set everything up on toggle switches on the dash uh, so that I could turn any any combination of lights on or off that I wanted to whenever I wanted to. And uh, I went up there one night and I took the top off the thing. It was a, an old 69 Chevy Blazer, so the whole top would come off. And and it was really bright moonlight, so I could, I could see enough to move the vehicle without running off the road, but not enough to where um you know you could see like daylight it wasn't like that it was just light enough where you could get kind of an idea where the road was so i would creep along at just a couple miles an hour with the lights off well i drove down the road the first time with the lights on didn't see anything like usual so i made another loop back and turned the lights off and then would creep really slowly along 
uh, and you could hear the engine. Uh, and then periodically I'd flip the headlights on and there'd be animals. There'd be deer, raccoon, all kinds of things on the road, right in the middle of the road. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, uh, it works. Yeah. And the two miles an hour, very slowly that, that yeah, works too. Sure. Uh, as opposed to zipping through, uh, well, like I said, I, I couldn't see well enough to go very fast, so that was kind of the reason for that speed. But it seemed to it seemed to work out better, you know, just going at that pace. Well, here's here's something in John Green's book. Al Hodgson told um, told John Green a Sasquatch was reported to have walked past the family who were camped by the Trinity River at night. The father got in the car, turned the headlights on, mm-hmm. and I mean that's just the extent of it, but. Um, you know, there again, you know, turn the lights on, presumably it took off, but that area, uh, there's the Trinity Alps, as I'm assuming that's in the same region as the Trinity River. Yeah, the Trinity Alps are north of there. And we've had a lot of activity, uh, in that, from that area. I think even, we, we need to see if we get them back on Todd. Yeah. Uh, one of your contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, I heard from him not too long ago, so I should see if he's uh, available. Yeah, he had some really interesting encounters up in that area. But anyway, Will, that's all I have for now. Unless uh, unless we need anything else? or No, I think that'll wrap it up for this segment. Um, folks, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next segment. This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, Government Indian Agent Teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C.V. Tench, illustrated by T.T. Muneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair, who have figured in redskin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct but the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs, 
They are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men would be quite beyond their powers. I am convinced, said Mr. Burns, that survivors of the Sasquatch do still inhabit the inaccessible interior of British Columbia. Only by sheer luck, however, is a white man likely to sight one of them, because, like wild animals, they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, and in that rocky country it is impossible to track them down. I still live in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens, I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick growth of black woolly hair. In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled, to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more the red man took to his heels, Well-nigh dazed from exhaustion, he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly, he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then, with his rifle at the ready, he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently, there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse and whispered to his squaw and children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning... The Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing 
is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha, area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. Before proceeding to relate further incidents connecting with the mysterious Sasquatch, I ought to explain that for the past 15 years I have occupied a government position as Indian agent stationed at the Chehalis Indian Reserve, some 60-odd miles from Vancouver, British Columbia. My charges are also my friends, and because I have always reciprocated their regard, endeavoring to help them in every way possible, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, a place of the wild men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave-dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic period of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the red men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in this section of the country, they were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand-to-hand -hand with war clubs on the mountainsides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight-foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct. The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face. He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. 
All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Mora's Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators, the red men believe, that individual Indians have encountered. Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. They were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers. The Expedition That Failed In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch detecting the approach of so many strangers would immediately go into hiding. The Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, they had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here, Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago, Three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit, we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder. We peered inside the opening but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it 
began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story warned us not to venture near the cave again as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch, but we paid no attention to them and went off to examine the cave once more. To our great disappointment and surprise, we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, and we were quite unable to move it. Some years later, I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle, the creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first I was terribly scared, but his eyes looked kind, and he asked me to sit down and talk. He told me that during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears, and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain, where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish, and meat, just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark, and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. The Wild Woman There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains, said Charlie in his terse Indian dialect. They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them, nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another, but the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way. I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later, something shot out of that hole. I fired, and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it, and then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy, about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward, he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and Every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, 
big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I am sure if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared, and instinctively I lifted my rifle in case I had to defend myself. The wild woman ran toward the boy, bent over him, and then turned on me savagely, her eyes like balls of fire. And in the Douglas dialect, she growled, "'You have hurt my friend!' I explained in the same language, "'I am part Douglas myself, "'that I had mistaken the boy for a bear "'and was very sorry for the accident. "'Anyway, I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. "'She made no reply, "'but picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, "'lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods.' I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white-skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September, when Indian hop-pickers were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. It was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence, and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not, that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September while with the hop-pickers there. It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adeline August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. We were walking on the railroad track when Adeline noticed someone walking along the grade coming toward us. I also saw this person and first thought it another man walking the tracks as we were. But as he came closer, we noticed that his appearance was very strange, and on coming still closer, we halted in amazement and alarm. We saw that the man wore no clothing at all and was covered with hair like an animal. We were both very frightened. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. His eyes were very large and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance. Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran, I looked back as I ran and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild, hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity 
as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now, let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch, and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcast On May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist today. In fact, thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as, in response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than two thousand red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, surrounded by important dignitaries and others. Absolutely ignoring the entire groups, Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. The white speaker is wrong. To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still all around here. I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia. During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield, a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. In the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then virgin wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches, because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes? That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first, Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, 
fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek that churned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking. As he came within view of his campsite, he looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, King stopped and unslung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear and close to his eyes. A giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness, and that he was seeing things. Then it slowly dawned upon him that through the glasses he was actually getting a close-up of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars, until a few minutes later the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp. He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that the wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall, an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfall they had bagged. Suddenly a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Some time later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian named Frank Dan, who asserts that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village and seeing that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with the Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long, now very old. Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, she was kidnapped by a wild giant and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, 
and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What happened to Seraphine Long? Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that, in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. I was walking down towards home one day, many years ago, carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Qualak, Thunderbolt, I was soon to marry. Suddenly, at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out, and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified, fought, and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong, but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. Holding me easily under one arm with his other hand, he smeared tree gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying. Then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids, and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch, and much better preserved than we preserve them. A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave, there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on, I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave, Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, 
which is not unlike the Douglas dialect. I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands. I guess that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to take me back to my own people. At first he got very angry, as did his father and mother, but I kept on pleading with them, telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, because one day after I cried for a long time, the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum. With this he stuck down my eyelids as he had done before. Then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain. When we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home, he put me down and gently removed the tree gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. I just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article, the few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast, unexplored interior. And like the Indians, I also believe. Copyright J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January 1940, Volume 84, Number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story. Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story Number 1, Australia. Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15, 2009. Australian News, April 2009. 
two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katoomba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Addie Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told All News web reporter Jaden Cassidy, We were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state, Ingrid commented. The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. There have been many recent sightings there. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence. Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains, along with some other locals, continue to believe that the Yowie might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big. They're all hairy. They're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat. But they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, Yaren in China, Nguoi Rung in Vietnam, and the Yowie in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall and this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or abominable snowman, a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious 
as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three. Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. Nathan, the Brushman, by Velma Wallace. Sasquatch or something like it appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Nathan, the Brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Nathan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet some believed. It is said that the Nathan, also called brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Nathan. He would hover behind bushes, spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brushman still exists. In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Nathan and later returned. Although the Nathan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Nathan. My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter. The startled man looked up and then ran away. Jeffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Nathan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs because there would have been tracks, and camp robbers, gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays, always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the brushman sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. 
Perhaps the spirits of those long ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of story number three. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959. Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane where it stalked teenagers. The Orange Eyes creature first gained notice on March 28th, 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's Riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in, forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, and chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but they found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the bees ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster, just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights, to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June 23, 2001, 10.38 a.m. This sounds like an urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head Report from Richland County, Ohio, Vintage, 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly, there he was less than 15 feet in front of me. I am a 73-year-old man, and when I was 13 years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on his back, coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side, 
It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune. Looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Well, mind you, at this time of my life, I had never heard of Yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. Uh, this figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair and a hairless, pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that an occasional you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. His arms were to his side, and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish, reddish face, which floated out of the water, I'd say from the front of where his ears should be to the front of his face. His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man. He showed no facial expression. Only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me, I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. Having never heard of these creatures, I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. I was always interested in animals, and never ever saw anything like this. As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me and 
we had an eye-to-eye connection which only lasted a few seconds. I can't say for sure, but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color. He felt kindly to me, not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and it's clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. They didn't pay much attention to me and thought I had seen a seal or walrus or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it and kind of forgot it after many years. Later I began to hear and read about Bigfoot and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish-white and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more. But finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to help understand what's going on. You may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J. from Maine. Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Bigfoot Lore Alive in Estacada Area, Clackamas County, Oregon. Long History of Alleged Encounters in Estacada by Vanessa Von Voris for the Estacada News, October 1, 2008. While hiking along the snowy banks of the Clackamas River late one January afternoon in 1969, Millie Kiggins of Estacada, her husband, and their friend Art Schneider found something that would thrust the Kiggins and the quiet wilderness surrounding Estacada into an international spotlight. We went to look at a Forest Service cabin up above Squaw Lake on the way to Cold Springs about 20 miles from Estacada, Kiggins said. They were going to sell them, and we wanted to look at them. We started out late, and we were in about three feet of snow. There was a gate, and we couldn't get through. So we started to walk, and it looked like somebody had already gotten through because there were tracks in the snow. They noticed the large size of the tracks and their depth. They were 18 inches deep, she said. Whatever had made them was heavy, because ours were a couple inches deep. It had to have been walking on two feet, and its stride was 67 inches. The path of the tracks was in an unusually straight line, too straight to be man-made footprints, she said. The hikers followed the imprints for about a quarter mile before they realized it was getting late and decided to turn back. Before leaving, Kiggins documented their discovery with a photograph and contacted the U.S. Forest Service. They said it was a snowshoe rabbit. I have no idea what it was, but if it was a rabbit, it would have to be a big one to make prints that big. I told them if it was a snowshoe rabbit, they had better look out because it's big enough to eat them, she said. Back at home on their farm on the outskirts of Estacada, the Kigginses began to experience a series of Bigfoot-like phenomena. He was around here for a year, she said. We found footprints all over the farm. Once they led to a five-foot fence and continued on the other side uninterrupted 
as if he stepped right over it. Sometimes we would smell him, smelled like a bad nursing home. We heard loud screams and grunts all at once lasting ten or fifteen seconds. It could be heard miles away. The hair on the back of your neck would stand up. It spooked the cattle. Kiggins sent a copy of her picture to Bigfoot hunter John Green, who later visited her with Roger Patterson, famous for the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film footage from 1967. K.A.T.U. interviewed her, and she was included in a British television documentary. Her photograph was published in a book written by a wildlife biologist and in a fifth-grade textbook. During the early 1970s, Estacada became a hotspot for Bigfoot enthusiasts. Scientists, hunters, trappers, and the media came from throughout the country and across the sea in the hope of gathering evidence of the existence of an elusive, shadowy creature that walks the forest on two legs. Many of the Bigfoot hunters also came looking for Kiggins. Eventually, the Estacada Police Department, back when Estacada had one, helped put a stop to it. We had all sorts of crackpots up here, she said, and I guess I'm one of them because I saw the tracks, but I can't help that. For anonymous first-hand accounts of Bigfoot phenomena, enthusiasts can now peruse the databases of websites such as OregonBigfoot.com and BigfootEncounters.com that collectively contain approximately 40 reports for the Estacada area alone between 1912 and 2006. A U.S. Forest Service employee, who does not wish to be identified, said she has never taken a single Bigfoot report in the 12 years she has worked at the desk of the Clackamas River Ranger District Office in Estacada. We don't have a book or a piece of paper that states sightings at all, she said. She refused to comment further for fear she would, quote, get in trouble again, unquote. There is at least one highly photographed, easily accessible Bigfoot in Estacada a menacing replica created by a chainsaw artist. It guards the entrance to Mike's second-hand store and holds a sign warning potential shoplifters they will be eaten. I've heard second- or third-hand stories, store owner Mike Doolittle said. I would think that if there was a Bigfoot, I would have heard about it on the 6 o'clock news. I know Santa Claus is real because I've seen him. I've never seen a Bigfoot. Kiggins has never seen Bigfoot either, and she is careful to emphasize that she is not exactly sure what created the strange tracks, the spooky sounds, or the awful smell. Although nearly 40 years have passed since she photographed the tracks in the snow, she still gets correspondence from Bigfoot enthusiasts. I recently got a letter from a guy in England who wants to know about it, she laughed. I don't know if I'm going to write back. It might be just another crackpot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.